Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. It is good to be back. I was away for a little over a week, um, and as I was, I really had the opportunity to, in my spare time, if such a thing exists, to go back into some of the things we have already talked about and just to look at what we've been doing, where we are at, and, and where we are going. One of the things that I want to make sure we are doing, and this is what really hit me when I was going back on previous studies, is that we are getting into the, the meaning of words, right? Because as we uncover what a certain Hebrew word or city means, we might get a deeper sense of what God is preparing us for. So one of the things I want to do this evening as we get back into Genesis 13 is to look at the city of Bethel and the significance of Bethel, just not in where we might see it in relationship to Jacob, but also just bigger picture stuff. And one of the things I want to keep on doing as we go through the book of Genesis is just appreciate, come to appreciate all the more, the dynamism, the forcefulness, and the beauty of the unity of the Old and New Testament. There's something at least for me personally, that is always so exciting to see the seamlessness between the Old and New Testament and that promise fulfillment structure. Mindful that Jesus just isn't fulfilling a promise as much as he's perfecting it, uh, transforming it, and giving it new life. Something that we are actually called to share in, and by that I mean God's very covenant life, right? Okay, so with that, let us jump back into Genesis 13, when I was with you a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Abram and Lot, right, and, and their separation. I did not get into these last few verses, and these last few verses are important to us. So let us turn to Genesis chapter 13, and I will go ahead and read verses, let's see here, 14 to 18. So the rest of chapter 13. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, now what's interesting about this is that Jacob will receive this same promised land while standing in the same place, Bethel, and peering out in the same four directions, right? The, the four points of the compass. Um, why don't you go to uh, chapter 28. I want to read a few verses to just kind of bring this home. Chapter 28, verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, 
I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And by you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth bless themselves. Behold, I am with you and will keep wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done that of which I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, Jacob says. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone which he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Okay, so again, here we have, what's that uh, fancy theological word? <laughs> a recapitulation, right? A surfacing again of something similar. So whereas in Genesis chapter 13, we were reading about Abraham in this great promised land and the four points of the compass, while well, here again with the story of Jacob, we have the same thing going on. And so the question that begs to be asked is, what is the value of this? What is the value of this? Well, I think it's twofold. First and foremost, we are made to appreciate the significance of God being a God of order, God being a God of pattern. You've heard me define typology as the study of patterns or the study of how one thing prefigures another, right? This is what the Old and New Testament is all about. But you see this also within the Old Testament, and it is important to see this pattern because as you see this pattern, you really begin to capture, I think, the continuity of how God just not works in salvation history, but again, keeps his promises, right? You know, I use the phrase salvation history. And what does it mean to even use that phrase? Well, remember that the word history itself also means pattern, right? Historia, to weave a pattern. But we are talking about history within the context of salvation. So when we use the phrase salvation history, how are we called to understand this? But how God has worked in history so as to heal the wound. And again, I use that phrase wound because remember the word salvation comes from the Latin salvatio, which has as its root save, which means healing balm, right? Healing balm. Why healing balm? Because God's Salvific love and blood that came forth from his side heals our wounds. And yes, on one hand, to identify what God did on the cross is absolutely foundational. But we are called to go deeper, my friends, because the Lord is our beloved. And as we do, what we are made to see and really capture is that, yes, God worked through history to bring about this deeper sense of what it means to restore us to proper health, and at the same time, how we are called to go deeper in our relationship with God, in the light of our beloved who has healed our wound. So important. So to study salvation history is in a manner of speaking to study the patterns that give clues to help us better understand the significance of just not the wound, 
but the wound healed, right? And how out from that we might cry, Abba, Father, that we might express gratitude for the greatness of his salvific love. So we use this phrase, salvation history, that's just a soundbite into what that means. We talk about this out from a reflection on just not Abraham, but also Jacob, because in it we can begin to see some of that pattern, if you will. Now, all of that being said, from the outset, I mentioned the significance of words. And, and what caught my attention here is, well, what you heard in both Genesis chapter 13 and also Genesis chapter 28. And what I'm thinking about here is Bethel. Bethel. And just not Bethel, but Bethlehem and Bethesda, all having that same Hebrew root, that Hebrew root of Beth, which means a home or temple. I mean, my friends, understanding the temple is key to understanding one of the most significant themes in all of the Old and New Testaments, right? Temple references are everywhere. Uh, So Bethel, what does Bethel mean? But house or temple of God. Bethel, of course, was, as we were just reading in Genesis chapter 13, the site of Abraham's altar in Canaan, uh, the place where Abraham called on the Lord and worshipped. It was the place where, as we just read in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob saw the heavens open in his his dreams. And Jacob named the place Bethel because he perceived it was a holy place, a place where God dwelt. This is, what did he say? An awesome place. I can't wait to get into that Hebrew, by the way. That's just a teaser for probably a couple months down the road. Later, we know in Genesis chapter 35 verses 6 to 15, God appeared and spoke to Jacob at Bethel, inducting him into the Abrahamic covenant and and giving Jacob a new name, right? Israel. Consequently, what did Jacob do? But he built an altar and offered what? But sacrifices at Bethel. Later, when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, Bethel became the site of an apostate temple. You're going to go back into 1 Kings chapter 12. So you can see the significance of Bethel. Now, the question that begs to be asked is, what does all of this have to do with the New Testament? Well, a lot. Consider Bethlehem, meaning house or temple of bread. Jesus, who became the bread of life, comes from where? The house of bread. Isn't that significant? Oh, by the way, he was born in a manger. What does manger mean? Mandire, to chew or to gnaw. Now, on many accounts, Bethlehem was seen to be a small and inconsequential city, but what, five miles south of Jerusalem where Ruth met and married Boaz? What about Samuel? Samuel the prophet later anointed David as, as a king of Israel, where but in Bethlehem. How about Micah? Chapter 5, verse 2, what do we read there? But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, Bethlehem. Uh, by the way, Bethlehem Ephrata, what is Ephrata? Ephrata was an earlier name for Bethlehem, meaning fruitful, fruitful, which certainly is appropriate as it is the place where the fruit, seed of the woman, which should bruise the head of the serpent, was born, right? Brothers and sisters, 
Bethlehem was the place where the Lord came suddenly. Right as Malachi prophesied in chapter 3, verse 1. The chosen place where he came on earth to dwell. His first earthly home as an incarnate God. He came to earth with a message that he was the bread of life. Right? Read John chapter 6 carefully. The bread of life. The true reality behind the bread of the face or the presence bread talked about in, in the book of Exodus. The presence bread which dwelt continually before the presence of God in the holy place of the tabernacle, of course, later known as the what? But temple. Temple. Bethlehem was the house of bread, the bread of life, the house of Christ. It was the temple of bread, the temple of Christ. So significant. What about Bethesda? So Bethel means house of God. Bethlehem means house of bread. What about Bethesda? House of grace or house of mercy, right? Bethesda was a pool in Jerusalem where Jesus Christ, of course, healed an infirm, impotent man who was all alone in the world, who, who had no one to help him, and who had been sick for how many years? 38 years? Christ later found the healed man in the temple, did he not? And told him he had been made whole, his sins forgiven. Sin no more, Christ said, lest something worse than 38 years of sickness, such as damnation, <laughs> come upon you. Certainly, my friends, we could say that the grace of God was indeed made manifest at the house of grace, at the house of mercy, the temple of grace, the temple of mercy. Brothers and sisters, as Paul reminds us, the temple is where the grace of God is. So it is through the grace of Christ Jesus that we, you and I, come to better understand what it means to abide in the inner courts of God. Bethel, Bethlehem, Bethesda. All of these are in so many ways intertwined, and we ought to see how they all kind of form and inform one another. And I, I spend extra time with this because as we talk about Bethel, and Genesis chapter 13, and, and kind of fast forward into Genesis chapter 28, I really do want us to see the significance of the pattern of how God has not only worked in salvation history, but in these words, in these cities, he gives us clues so as to make certain connections that we might be enriched by them, not in some careless game of connect the dot, but no, in a very intentional spirit to see what God is doing and how he works in salvation history. Amen? Amen. Okay, so chapter 14, now we're not going to go through all of this right now. We have Lot's captivity and rescue. In verses 1 to 12, we have an alliance of four kings from Mesopotamia making war on five vassal kings from the Dead Sea Valley. So as these verses draw out, it was under the leadership of one Kedor Lomir that the Eastern Coalition subdues the entire region and, and plunders the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the significance of these 12 verses is that it is Abram's nephew, Lot, who is one of the prisoners of war being hauled back to Mesopotamia. 
So with that, I want to turn our attention to chapter 14, verse 13, and pick up there. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that, his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his goods, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, <laughs> what's going on here? Well, I want to pay particular attention here to verse 18 and this figure of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a royal title or throne name that in the Hebrew literally translates as righteous king. Righteous king. Some have suggested, some have suggested that this righteous king is Shem because if you were to follow the line of the firstborn blessing, the next time you see this firstborn blessing from the last time you see it is while here with Melchizedek. Now that's a whole separate study. I just throw that out there as a footnote. He is, that is Melchizedek, the first person in the whole Bible to be called a what? But priest. Priest. If you were to go to Psalm chapter 110 verse 4, we also read of this priest king Melchizedek. Now, as a whole, the identity of Melchizedek is a great mystery. Some modern scholars tend to view him as a, a pagan priest of the Canaanite high god El, although this deity was deemed the father of the gods in Canaanite mythology and, and not the maker of heaven and earth, so that leaves a lot to be desired. In Jewish tradition, in Jewish tradition, Melchizedek is named in the Dead Sea Scrolls as a heavenly judge and a uh, eschatological deliverer, right? Uh, by the way, I've mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls twice. Uh, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls and where do they come from? Remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls come to us from Qumran, Jordan. They were accidentally, coincidentally, no, providentially found by these shepherds again in 1947, and they have revealed much about just not the Jewish people during the time of Christ, but also some of the a historical milieu, if you will, that has helped us gain an appreciation into how to even better understand some aspects of sacred scripture. Now, however you wrap your head around this, what we do know, according to Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, is that Christian tradition sees him as a what? Type of the royal priestly Messiah and has identified him as an angel, as a, as a manifestation, if you will, of the pre-incarnate Christ or 
or as the, the patriarchal Shem. So certainly, again, something to think about. Now, the word Salem is a shorter name for what? But ancient Jerusalem, as indicated in Psalm chapter 76, verse 2. Uh, we'll talk more about this when we, when we get into more of the story of Abraham. But remember that Abraham, when he went up to Mount Moriah to slaughter his son Isaac, did this in the city of Salem, right? Well, <laughs> in Genesis chapter 22, as we read that narrative, in verses 8 and following, we read that when God intervenes, he will provide the lamb. He will provide the lamb. Well, the Hebrew word for provide the lamb is jeru, jeru. So here Abraham is in the city of Salem, ready to offer up his son. God intervenes and he says, I will provide the lamb. Jeru is what I will do for you. Hence, from that point, that city is no longer called Salem, city of peace, but Jerusalem, the city of peace where God will provide the lamb. How about that? You know, this evening we've been talking about Bethel and, and Bethlehem and Bethesda to just kind of unpack the significance of that, that Hebrew prefix Beth, you know, house or temple, and how that has kind of played out in salvation history. Well, here again, my friends, there's great significance in the inspired Word of God, even as it is tied to cities. Because here again, we ought to see the beauty of the seamlessness of how God has worked in salvation history as we come to understand, as we know that God did send another son, and that son was another lamb, and that lamb was slaughtered where? But in Golgotha, the range of Moriah, in the city of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, God follows through on his promises, does he not? God follows through on his promises. And for all of that, for all of that, what about the significance of the bread and wine in this narrative with Melchizedek, huh? Now, as verse 17 speaks to it, that is chapter 14, verse 17, these may have been communion portions of a thanksgiving sacrifice offered to God after a successful campaign. This, this wouldn't have been uncommon. Or, or they may suggest that a covenant is forged between Abraham and Melchizedek and is sealed with a sacred meal. Allegorically, my friends, allegory meaning, of course, the description of one thing under the image of another. Um, allegorically, in the actions of the priest Melchizedek, the sacrament of the Lord is prefigured, right? For Melchizedek is in every way a type of Jesus Christ who offered the bread and wine of Melchizedek, that is his body and blood. Also, for those of you who might be familiar with uh, the liturgy and, and the first Eucharistic prayer, what do, we, what do we hear but the bread and wine offered by your priest Melchizedek? Melchizedek. So here in these verses, my friends, we are introduced to the great figure of Melchizedek. That if you're familiar with the letter to the Hebrews, you're familiar with the great figure of Melchizedek. What I want us to understand here is, yeah, it's, it's fun to consider that he is Shem, <laughs> this firstborn son, but more specifically how he is the first priest mentioned in the Old Testament, and that he is a prefigurement, a type of of Jesus Christ. 
that just as Melchizedek offers up bread and wine, so does the priest of the new covenant offer up bread and wine, but under the power of the Holy Spirit, that bread and wine is transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So important to take a step back, recollect, roll up your sleeves and study, right? (laughs) I mean, brothers and sisters, these series of verses are so rich, so rich with, with theological insight as one might want to uncover the significance, the sacramental significance of this great figure, Melchizedek. All right, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. I know we we got into some heavy biblical theology, but from time to time I, I do that, and I do think it's important because it does help us in our theologizing. Remember, theology simply means faith seeking understanding. And if we are seeking understanding, better understanding into the person of Melchizedek and what God is after in the letter to the Hebrews, we might come to see the significance of who Jesus is when he says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes from Bethlehem, right? (laughs) The one who, who used the pool of Bethesda. The one who was even there in a Trinitarian presence in Bethel. House of God, house of bread, house of mercy. This is, this is what the life of the church is about, and this is what we seek to come to understand. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.